What you're hearing right now is a familiar soundtrack in many of our Amplify Podcast Network meetings with co-directors Hannah McGregor and Siobhan McMenemy. Oh, dear. (laughs) Always inspired by Hannah and Siobhan's dynamic and collegial working relationship, I was curious to sit down with the two of them and ask more about how Amplify got started. In this episode of Amplified, Hannah and Siobhan get candid about the fluid ideas and evolving process that led us all to the Amplify Podcast Network. We talk about the ethos behind the project and what they look forward to seeing and hearing in the future of scholarly podcasting. So I'm more interested to hear kind of like a a project meet cute, like a research idea meet, meet cute story um, of how you two came to this project um, and it start with Secret Feminist Agenda. So I don't even know what you're talking about. I, a meet, a meet cute. It's, um, it's a trope in rom-coms. It's the moment when yeah. the... When the two romantic leads encounter one another, (laughs) and it's often sort of a wacky, like, they both reach for the same pair of gloves, or their (laughs) dog leashes get tangled together. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I could work with that. You know, take me back to the beginning. So a moment that maybe can come to mind, uh, whoever wants to jump in first, when you first decided to explore the idea of peer review podcasting together. You know, where were you? This is a pre-COVID time. <laughs> I'm not sure these ideas were happening. And and just kind of jump into it. How did it start? It was a Congress. Which Congress was it, Siobhan? Calgary? I want to say Calgary. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was in the... Um, exhibit hall. The exhibit hall. Yes. That, which is the, the best place at Congress. Mm-hmm. It's It's... The place I miss the most about conferences, like I absolutely mm. do not miss sitting in a cold hotel room listening to somebody read a 20-minute paper, but I miss exhibit halls. <laughs> it's where all the best and many of the worst conversations <laughs> happen. It was the summer before I started my job at SFU, and we had already met just in the context of you had come to the U of A to run a workshop teaching grad students how to turn their dissertations into books. So like we'd met in a few contexts like that, but we got talking at the Woolup booth in the exhibition about podcasts. That was my first Congress after I moved to WLU Press. Um, and, And I was not really much of a podcast listener But I was definitely interested in the form and learning a lot more about it. And I knew enough about myself that I knew I wasn't going to take it up myself. And so I said, well, I'm keen to figure out a way to to do something with podcasts at a press. Could we keep talking? Often the way the good ideas begin (laughs) in a sort of vague and excited way. (laughs) I've never really thought of it before, but it was such a perfect moment because we were both starting new jobs Mm -hmm. and we had both just made moves from perhaps slightly more traditional environments Mm -hmm. with more traditional understandings of research into these like maybe slightly smaller, slightly scrappier places where there was more of a sense of like the possibility for play 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think as individual professionals, we were suddenly aware that we had a greater latitude for experimenting. Mm. And so that worked in the favor of first working on secret feminist agenda and then subsequently over the course of a few years deciding we wanted to go even bigger. Yeah. (laughs) And it was very like we had no clear sense of what shape the project would take. Like when we originally wrote the Shirk proposal, I think I was going to do a podcast about like fan studies. We had no specific idea about the podcast itself. We just kind of had this general sense that like, Podcasts, huh? Yeah. That's a thing. (laughs) You know, one of the real pleasures for me in working on with you generally over these two projects, but but earliest uh, with Secret Feminist Agenda is that you at least understood the freedom that we had Mm. to continue to experiment and to, in some ways, ask more questions than we were going to really concretely answer. And that was very liberating for me because I had never done any sort of research project as such. It was it was a very exciting conversation. And to subsequently then begin doing a little more concrete work to formalize what it was we wanted to do together. You mentioned Secret Feminist Agenda. And for those who know about the project already, Amplify really started as a smaller project case study with Secret Feminist Agenda. So were you already thinking about Amplify at that point when you started working on the peer review process for Secret Feminist Agenda? Or did that come later in that experience? From my perspective, it was very focused initially. And then once we got into the more experimental stages of peer review, as opposed to just sort of figuring out what the podcast would be, and then going through the process of arguing with one another as to whether Secret Feminist Agenda was going to be appropriate. The hands-on work of determining how to peer review what to ask in peer review, all of those very uh, practical questions that I was supposed to be figuring out and that Hannah was very actively participating in as well. Those were the moments where I thought, there's no way I'm going to get to a concrete answer, even after what turned into three iterations of of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Realizing that was also helpful, not, it, not only in terms of relieving me of the stress of feeling like I had to have a clear answer at the end of this process, but also in terms of imagining a next bigger step that would allow me to hone the best practices, if you will, um, of the peer review component. Yeah. I like that framing. I hadn't really thought of it explicitly like that. I mean, it was an insight development grant, Mm. which is the whole premise of those grants is that you raise a proposition and then see if it works. There were so many points when it was like, okay, is this a good idea? Well, we have no idea, but we're experimenting. Like, this is just an experimental process. So, you know, Siobhan talked me into using Secret Feminist Agenda as our test case. And I think if I had been attached to the idea that, like, this is going to be the thing that proves that scholarly podcasting works, I would have been like, nope. But it was just like, (laughs) yeah, let's let's just play. That sense of experimentation always had a, like, we'll get to iterate this again. We don't Mm -hmm. have to figure out everything now. We're answering some questions. We will get to do this a few more times and keep figuring stuff out. In fact, what 
we realized, or what I sort of knew from the beginning as a press person taking on some responsibility for rationalizing this in a sense and looking beyond the scope of this particular experiment in order to convince a community of academics, administrators, grant agencies, and colleagues at university presses that forms of digital scholarship need peer review, can benefit from peer review, and should be published within our our imprint like any other form of publishable scholarship. So in thinking about all that, I realized that first set of questions that we used for the first season of Secret Feminist Agenda had to have what I called at the time inside baseball questions. Yeah. Questions that irritated the heck out of the reviewers and probably... Probably you too, Hannah. No, I love meta questions. (laughs) Well, I do too, but it it was really not just because of that, but because I was imagining taking the responses of the reviewers, because we knew they were also going to be public, and saying, I defy you to tell me this isn't rigorous. I defy you to tell me this doesn't indicate a meaningful engagement with a scholarly work. To ask certain of those inside baseball questions was important so that on the record, (laughs) there would be evidence of people in the fields related to this undertaking saying, yes, of course, this is vital. Of course, the forum requires its own approach, but it's still scholarship. That peer review, it began to make me think about all of the work I still needed to do Mm. between, you know, the conversations you and I were having, Hannah, about the limits you wanted to put on that particular podcast. You know, how long will we continue this this undertaking of peer review for it? And then also just professionally what I felt I needed still to accomplish to sort of figure out a sensible way of peer reviewing scholarly podcasts, I was going to need more opportunities than just this one. And so there are many reasons why we began to then talk about another grant and another research project. But the excitement and the opportunity to keep experimenting with the peer review and to apply to other series, some of the lessons I learned working with Hannah's podcast was really, really instrumental. Mm. Part of what I think is really wonderful about this project is that as co-directors, you're both coming at this project from very different perspectives, different backgrounds, certainly with different key questions, big questions in mind, right? Coming from Hannah with your research background and thinking about podcasts as scholarship, what is that going to sound like? What kind of research can we put out in this forum? And then Siobhan coming from the press side of things about the potentials of what it means to publish podcasts as scholarship and what could the future of that industry for university presses look like? And so I was curious to hear from both of you, you know, Siobhan, you've talked a bit about this already, but what kind of advice would you give now that you're a few years into this this project and, and this peer review experience that we continue to do with Amplify? What would your advice be to other academic publishers out there who are interested in experimenting with podcasting or other forms of uh, scholarship publication? <laughs> Well, there are plenty of people and and publishers working, whether they're book publishers or journal publishers or on born digital scholarship and the task of peer reviewing and production for that matter. And so to answer the question (laughs) as best I feel capable of doing in the moment, I would say that all press directors should be encouraged to allow their 
editors the kind of flexibility and experimentation that I have been permitted. It's really helped me to better understand what authors and scholars generally want and can benefit from to make peer review really and truly functional and productive. What I've come to realize in working on podcasting is that when you are dealing with an unconventional work, being open to experimenting, whether you're reviewing a podcast or a book manuscript, if you're not attuned to the unconventional nature and you don't bring to bear on the peer review some degree of accommodation of that unconventional form, then you're not really embracing it the way a good editor should. Peer review, I firmly believe in when it is done well. Ooh, yes. I wrote down something. I was thinking, Stacey, as you were talking about how we we come from really different directions into this work. And I was like, yeah, we do. We have really different professional backgrounds. We have different kinds of training. We have different, really different jobs. But at the heart of it, we are both big gay shit disturbers. And I think that that is an, like an ethic that is at the heart of this project, Mm -hmm. is just a kind of like a political orientation towards the status quo that does not assume that it is fine or good as it is. Mm -hmm. Like that is a like a basic premise, I think, of the way we both do our work is like, oh, why would I assume that the way things are now is fine? Why would I assume that the way things have been done is the way they ought to be done? Why would I in any way trust that the way that institutions are currently organized is good or fosters the kinds of things I want to create in the world. Just a no, just a no, just a kind of general no to everything, followed by a, but what if? Mm. Uh, that, I guess, uh, yes, to all so of that. And that also reminds me of something that I have routinely said to authors of all kinds of work. My job, it is to say no in the sense that Hannah has just outlined, but it's to say yes, but to authors, if they have something experimental, something out of the ordinary, something unconventional, Mm -hmm. and then to engage with authors in a series of questions that explode the the conventions, but point out that the conventions are still surrounding us. And so we have to then have an answer, essentially, for the critics who say, well, what about this convention over here that you seem to be abandoning? So you have to be able to say, well, we're, we're not, actually. We're just reforming them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it's this really thoughtful approach you take with your authors, Siobhan, you know, your openness to experimentation. And as Hannah says, the the project's collective big gay shit disturber energy (laughs) that has me and and so many others invested in the future of this work. So bringing it back to being at Congress, Calgary 2016, in the Little Book Expo, you have this casual conversation that turns into now, many years later, this project, the Amplify Podcast Network. Where are you hoping, you know, this was, we're talking 2016, this is almost six years ago now, which is wild. Honestly, the 
conversation around podcasting on scholarship has really grown a ton in those six years. Um, where are you hoping we can take the podcast network in the next few years, maybe not six years, but maybe two or three years to really grow this conversation and see what happens next for podcasting as scholarship? I'm really interested in questions of sustainability. That is really, really what interests me is that sort of these one-off experiments, we can figure out how to fund them and how to make them possible because they work within the structure of a grant that you can be like, okay, we're going to have, you know, two years to do this, three years to do this. We'll do this little experiment. We'll do another little experiment. But that question of like, how do we just make it so that podcasts are just a thing that a press can be publishing? without having to, you know, always applying for another grant, always coming up with another experiment. Like, how do we make this sustainable without losing the fun weirdness of it? Hmm. You know, that's a a direction that, that we're all still sort of moving in is like, okay, what are different funding models? Okay, what are different ways that we could partner with different presses, with different organizations? How could we talk to Shirk about shifting how they think about what counts as an output. Like, I feel like talking increasingly about these sort of big picture questions that are part of how to make this work sustainable. And I like that. I like the way that at each step, the project sort of goes like scopes out and then scopes out a little bit more and then scopes out a little bit more. So like, I hope that we are finding models to make this sustainable. And then I also hope that we are continually collaborating with people who break whatever models we come up with. And I think the breaking down the road is inevitable, Mm. partly because the resistance has been there already from the beginning. One of the earliest public chats, or it was a panel at at a subsequent Congress, included someone in the audience who directly not unfriendly, but somewhat aggressively asked what businesses did I have involving myself in this? Because podcasts inherently are something that aren't staid and boring and, you know, all the things that people like to accuse scholarly publishing of being. (laughs) And we saw a certain amount of that same skepticism in the peer review initially. And I think what's been interesting is that in subsequent years, with more and more people learning about this project and having a look at the peer review and so on and so forth, people have become less skeptical, but I have become much more attuned to the need for that, as you both like to say, the DIY feel of the podcast. I'm not going to let that go, but what I think will happen is that presses will experiment with our methods, will find that they need to break them, rewrite them, rework them, and they may abandon the podcast because it's not easy to turn into a cookie cutter production process. What we're working on with Amplify right now with all, you know, the tool for creating metadata and preserving, that's really exciting because that's where I think the work we're putting in now is going to go out into the world and last beyond perhaps any given individual podcaster. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm not in disagreement with what Hannah has said about the sort of financial sustainability and the sort of means of keeping going. But at the same time, I'm also thinking it's going to have a life of its own yeah. as a result of our work. 
From questions of DIY experimentation, sustainability, and preservation, I can't wait to see what the future holds for scholarly podcasting. But until then, stay tuned for more episodes of Amplified, behind-the-scenes chats coming to you soon from our team here at the Amplify Podcast Network.